I knew that if she makes mistakes uh, or she makes decisions that I disagree with, they may not necessarily be mistakes, but from my point of view, mistakes, those are easily fixed. Those are policies that can be changed. My concern with Kenny, knowing him and, and some of his colleagues for a long, long time, is that his mistakes will take decades to fix because he is not only shifting policy, he is trying to change the culture of the province, you know, not only changing policies within the province and, and fixing that will take much, much longer. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, you're listening to the second part of our interview with former Deputy Premier Thomas Lukatsik. If you haven't heard part one yet, I would recommend listening to that first, but I won't take up any more of your time. So let's get to it. It's funny because you talked about how there wasn't much really to go on or much worth fighting. Like I, this happened and I'm sitting at a news desk. I don't hear a word of it. And even with Kenny, which is like public information, it's so mildly reported on his investigation like it takes a backseat to pretty much everything else why do you think that is that um the media and albertans don't seem to really give a shit about this i think they do but you know media media has to be careful what it reports so our cmp is not releasing any information on their investigation uh even though i believe it's it's going on uh people are being interviewed uh i know of people that have been interviewed uh, even very recently so media has to be very cautious what it what it reports because uh, we are looking at two tiers of investigation. You know, there is one that has to do with the Kamikaze campaign, um, and that the election commission uh, investigated. But but what our CMP is dealing with are very serious criminal uh, possible offenses. Uh, so media cannot be maverick and and just report um, you know stuff that and cast any aspersions. Uh, until this is this is there are charges laid and this is tried in court, uh, but from a person that participated in the race, having observed uh, the UCP race, it it very closely resembled you know that of mine. Not only because the same players were involved, but we know that the numbers and later on the accusations that were flying uh, were identical to those of mine. So you know it, it's reasonable to draw a conclusion that whatever happened in Kenny's race also happened in my race. Do you actually believe there's a scenario still where Kenny faces punishment for this? And if the answer is yes, what the hell is taking so long? Because a lot of, I mean, I can say it, damage is being done by his government through policies that like, when do we get to see this hammer fall, like the shoe drop on his uh, election election alleged election antics 
Yeah. You know, it, it's really hard to tell because only our CMP knows at this point in time. But I can tell you, you know, you don't levy more than $300,000 in fines when there was no wrongdoing. So wrongdoing, wrongdoing happened. Now, will it result in criminal charges? Perhaps. Uh, but how high up the ladder will it go? Uh, Kenny already shifted uh, his comments from nothing happened to, well, if it happened, uh, it happened among volunteers and there are thousands of volunteers. So how would I possibly have known? Uh, so he was go he's going to definitely distance himself and, and, and some lower ranking volunteers will be thrown under a bus. Um, those of us who have been candidates in campaigns know that nothing happens in a campaign without the manager and the candidate knowing uh, sooner or later. Uh, but there will be some plausible deniability, I'm sure. So let's wait and see. Uh, I have to tell you, I have a lot of confidence in our CMP. Uh, I know, especially now when the government is challenging them, uh, people you know like to crap all over our police. Uh, and, and there are some, some good reasons to be upset with police. But when it comes to their integrity of investigations, um, there's no other police force, frankly, in the world that I would trust more investigating this than, than our CMP. So they'll get to the bottom of it. Now, there may not be enough evidence to lay charges, but, uh, but I, I don't think there, there possibly could be an Albertan who looks at what happened in the leadership race that wouldn't conclude that some funny business took place. There are people right now who know that their name was used to vote and, and swear to God that they never voted. Frankly, they hold an NDP uh, membership and then somehow they landed on a list of UCP and ended up voting. One of the things that's going on uh, or that's happened um, throughout all of this is some changes to post-secondary education cuts and uh, this move to performance base, these kinds of things. You were the advanced education minister for time. You had to oversee some budget cuts as well. And some things that I think uh, what I read led to like the ending of a scholarship at the U of A, so these kinds of things. And I believe you at one point wrote a letter to somebody saying like, hey, like, I don't like this either. So I just get, I wanna, I wanna get your thoughts on what happened when you were in the cabinet and, and what you had to oversee and your thoughts on what you're seeing today as well. That was a, that was a tough, tough part. Um, but, you know, when, when you're a cabinet minister, sometimes you end up doing work that you don't particularly um, enjoy. And, and sometimes you have to compromise and implement decisions of others that are already in place and, and sort of try to make the best of it. Um, I was a deputy premier without a portfolio. Brian Mason used to call me a hood ornament because I didn't have a portfolio. Uh, and, and I was actually uh, in Vietnam with a charity that, that I started that builds playgrounds, refurbishes and builds playgrounds for children all over the world. And the premier called me up, Premier Redford, and said, Thomas, I need you back in the country as soon as possible because I will be doing a cabinet shuffle and I'm, I'm shuffling out the advanced education minister and, and I want you to take this on in addition to deputy premier. And this was when budget was already set uh, and printed. Uh, so I ended up coming back to, to Alberta, a session begun, budget was introduced and there was a 7% cut um, in advanced education budget. So my job was to implement that and I did. And it was a tough, tough, tough thing to do. Um, from my perspective, uh, somewhat counterintuitive, but it is what it is. Uh, my um, 
I should should call it a fight with post-secondary institutions was that I was always a firm believer that we should develop a concept of, of, of campus Alberta. Whereas a student who finished two years of education at Lethbridge University uh, that moves to Calgary or Edmonton should just be able to pick up and carry on. And where U of A would say, well, we don't give you credit for these seven courses because they don't match ours. You know, I thought in the same province under the same Minister of Advanced Education, that's ridiculous. So I was always a proponent of, of, um, of a campus Alberta where all post-secondary institutions sort of work together and share credits and allow for transfers uh, and they don't duplicate their services. But I received the biggest pushback uh, from University of Alberta, then President Indira Samasukera, who was of the opinion that uh, that U of A is a flagship, as she used to call it, always a flagship institution, and that it should never be required to be put at the same level as all other post-secondary institutions. My comment always to her was, uh, you know, I don't need a flagship, I need a flotilla that, that moves in the same direction. Uh, she and I sparred over this uh, for a long period of time. So I had this dilemma of, of, of convincing post-secondaries to work together and share credits and be more student-focused and at the same time implementing a 7%, I believe it was cut. Um, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't an easy conversation. So then the only way to get universities and post-secondaries online is for the first time I issued the mandate letters. And, and I said to each institution, your role in the system is this. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't all have to develop your online capacity when we have Athabasca that is really the best. Let them do that for you. You know, you, you don't all have to have a, a degree in education. In, in Edmonton, you can get an education degree from three institutions. Uh, why don't we just work together and, um, and, 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 and sort of bring the system a little tighter? Post-secondary institutions are very traditional. Um, and very independent, and they have to be independent. So, so affecting change in in advanced education is is very difficult. So it was a tough tough period, but I I love those challenges. Uh, I enjoyed them, and I had a full backing of Alison Redford on that one, which uh, which helped a lot. Now, the seven percent cut uh, in in their first year in government, uh, the UCP also cut um, post secondary funding by seven percent. What was the difference between the PC's approach to post-secondary funding and the current government's? You know, cut is a cut is a cut. Uh, and I'm not going to argue here that ours was better than theirs. I wish we didn't do ours the way we did it. Uh, I wish we, gave, we did it more gradually and gave institutions more time to adjust to it. Um, and I think then the impact would have been lessened. And, and same, I would say, uh, about the current, um, the current government. You know, my theory is this. Um, you really can't cut yourself out of a deficit. I know, I know that Ronald Reagan made this uh, comment that uh, deficits are not done by undertaxation. They're done by overspending. But I would differ uh, with Reagan on this one, because I also know that you simply can cannot cut yourself out of a deficit. That if you want, for example, the Ministry of Health not to be a cost driver, simply just cutting will not get you there. You need to reform the system. You, you need to look at what the system does. 
in order to to see long term spending trajectory change. So you know, my comment recently to Kenny on Twitter was, you know, uh, cutting six hundred million dollars by high, by laying off laundry workers is not the way to fix the system. How about you you change the system and start looking at wellness? Let's start preventing the diseases and hospitalization from happening in the first place, and then you will see a long term gradual change. Uh, you know, these, these immediate cuts, they're just a band-aid. And, and later on, you creep up anyway, because that's not a systemic change. That's just one of those small spare tires on your car. You know, uh, it'll get you there, uh, but you can't drive on it for too long of a period of time. That's, that's sort of the same thing. So in post-secondary education, uh, the, the problem in Alberta is dual. Number one, they are not working well together with each other. Uh, there is a lot of capital uh, and a lot of brain trust in those uh, trust in those uh, institutions, uh, and if they worked as a as a partners in a unified campus Alberta system, I think we would see much better outcomes, uh, both from a financial perspective, but also from a, a student's experience in the system. Sort of California has a system where you have universities, but they're all UCLA. They're all in the same campus. You can transfer from one to another, and not lose credits. Uh, so that's that's one thing. Second thing is our institutions struggle with R and D. Uh, we we there are some phenomenal inventions being made in all of our post secondary institutions. Um, so there is research and development, but it never gets commercialized. We we are really bad in on commercializing inventions. Uh, uh, that take place at our post-secondary institutions. So uh, I was a big proponent, and I hope that some future government will become a proponent of, of creating an institute uh, that focuses on, on uh, uh, marketing uh, some of the great stuff that happens in our post-secondary institutions and allowing the institutions to keep the benefit of it so that, so that then it supplements their funding and, and, and perpetuates R&D and innovation. There's a lot of innovation, but it never goes to market. So, see, those are the systemic changes that that over time make institutions great. You know, that's how Harvard became Harvard. They created MIT that does all this R&D and, and makes piles of money for Harvard. Um, unless we do that, this sort of chopping and trimming, chopping and trimming, it just makes them mediocre institutions. And, and, and frankly, at the end, students don't want to go to mediocre institutions. So do you regret uh, overseeing that 7% cut? Because I do. I yeah. do. Yeah, I do. Uh, I wish I didn't have to do it. I wish we didn't do it the way we did it. There was room to cut, but as I said, not by simply cutting a budget, but by reforming uh, the institutions. But, you know, as I said earlier, in cabinet, sometimes you, you end up implementing decisions that you yourself personally don't 100% agree with. Now, it's a good time to tra to transition here because we do have to get, to, I want to hear some stuff about the present day government. So I want to quickly to transition. You talk about um, sometimes you don't always do what you want to do. And that, you served under several premiers and you knew, uh, like you knew Peter Lougheed personally, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've seen a lot of different conservative quote unquote leaders in this province and you know acutely some of the differences we have people in this province that 
maybe don't actually see the differences between today's, uh, you know, United Conservatives and and the old. Um, can we just talk about sort of like what does conservatism, with all you've seen, just start by telling us what does conservative mean to you, and do you still consider yourself a conservative, considering the way uh, it is these days? You know, I. I... I ceased to to use those terms anymore because they they lost their meaning and it's just you know throwing uh, words around that 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 mean different things to different people. So if I was to say I am a conservative, you automatically would make certain assumptions which I perhaps never even intended by saying it. So I I don't use those terms anymore. Uh, one of my roles as deputy premier was to meet from time to time with Premier Lockheed at his uh, favorite uh, restaurant at the Fairmount Hotel um, in Calgary. He had a certain table where he liked to have long, long breakfast that would turn into lunch. And because of our respect for, for him, uh, uh, we would set aside time to brief him from time to time on what happens in government. And that was my job. So I met with a number of times during those briefing meetings. And and he was a proud conservative. And as you know, Kenny calls himself a proud conservative, and yet those two could never be in the same room. They, they, there is by far more that they disagree on than they agree on. Um, you know, my, my definition of who I am is I, I believe in, in, in fiscal responsibility, which means that at times you borrow money when the money is cheap, just like families do. Certain things you have to mortgage over time and you have to borrow like families do with houses. But at the end of the day, your operating budget has to be balanced. You know, you, you can't spend more every month on everything combined than you're, than you're bringing in. It just it simply, it just doesn't work. So there has to be a sensible fiscal plan in place that, that pays for all the bills uh, over a longer period period of time. But I also believe that you cannot run government like a business. You know, often you hear this, every time I hear this, I get nauseous. Somebody says, well, we got to run this place like a business. Well, you can't because government is not a business and government does everything that businesses don't want to do. Uh, if, if what government does made money, then business would take it over and, and, and do, it, do it just as well or better. Uh, you know, uh, paving highways doesn't make money. Uh, in most cases, running public uh, healthcare facilities doesn't make money. Uh, public education doesn't make money. It makes money over a long period of time. It creates a better society, better infrastructure system uh, so that businesses can make money, but, but in themselves, they don't make money. So, so government provides services uh, is in the service industry that doesn't directly necessarily make money. So, you know, th those are conservative values, um, self-reliance to some degree. But the fact is, you know, we don't live, you know, this is not Plato's Republic where we live in, in sort of perfect worlds of forms. You know, we, we blend ideologies. Uh, you cannot run a purely capitalist system. It would collapse. Uh, it, it, would be, it would be unlivable. You know, people would be dying in the streets. You, you cannot run a, a socialist system either because private sector needs to, uh, needs to be one of the major drivers of, of economy. We don't believe in nationalizing everything. Uh, so so we, 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 you know, I believe in pragmatism. Uh, at certain times, uh, left-leaning decisions make more sense than right-leaning. And, and then at certain times, you, you turn far to the right because it just makes sense. You have to be flexible as a government. But in general, um, 
you know, uh, and that's why Lockheed, he didn't come up with this thing because Progressive Conservative Party, uh, contrary to what most people believe, uh, was in existence before Lockheed. He just adopted this name uh, and this party structure. But uh, Progressive Conservative was to, was to be just that, conservative on certain ideas, but progressive on others. Uh, especially on the social matters. Uh, and when I say social matters, I'm not only talking about uh, human rights and, and, and all that. We're talking about the entire network of social services, provision of social services. That's what, that's what progressive conservative was really all about. We don't have that anymore. Uh, you know, the, the current conservative party, um, you know, there is very little common DNA between the PCs and, and who they are right now. What they really are, uh, is is a term that most normal people don't use, but it's it's called neoliberalism. It's this extreme um, right wing um, view of the world that is populist in nature. Uh, I know a lot of people again don't like this term, but it has it has fascist tendencies to it. Uh, we see this, uh, frankly, in the country of my origin right now, in Poland, uh, what's happening. They, they have a, a government with sort of similar approach to government uh, in, uh, in Hungary as well. And, um, and, and, and we see this a little bit with, with the Republicans in, in, uh, in the United States as well. Uh, that is not true conservatism for those of us who are PCs. That's why there are so many of us progressive conservatives. Um, who don't see ourselves as, as NDPers by any standard that simply could never be in a, in a UCP caucus. Um, so th there are many homeless, politically homeless Albertans at this point in time. Who did you vote for in uh, the last election? In the last election, I, I actually even put out a little video uh, and I said, you know what, I'm going for a first time in my life, I'm going to hold my nose because there are, as I said earlier, there are things I, I don't agree with, but uh, uh, I was choosing the lesser of two evils and I don't believe in not voting. Uh, so I voted for NDP. I voted for Rachel Notley because I thought that uh, uh, even though I knew that she will make take some steps that I personally don't agree with, uh, they would not be as damaging uh, to the province as, as Kenny's. See, there is a, there is a big difference between a damage that a political party can can cause. My my review of, of uh, Rachel Notley, and then I got to know her really well. I have nothing but respect for her. Very very intelligent woman. Um, even though we argued often on on certain issues, but I knew that if she makes mistakes uh, or she makes decisions that I disagree with, they may not necessarily be mistakes, but from my point of view, mistakes. Those are easily fixed. Those are policies that can be changed. My concern with Kenny, knowing him and, and some of his colleagues for a long, long time, is that his mistakes will take decades to fix because he is not only shifting policy, he is trying to change the culture of the province, you know, not only changing policies within the province and, and fixing that will take much, much longer. Now, I mean, with all due respect to Uncle Ralph, um, are there not aspects of some of the cuts that he made that we already watched us pay decades of trying to catch play catch up on? Like, it feels like we already know the answer based on what we've already seen. What are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think that again, much comparing uh, Kenny to to uh, Notley's uh, decisions, I would use sort of a similar analogy. Um, Ralph was making 
very simple across the board cuts. And, and I, I think some of them were, in, the whole concept uh, of, of fixing the fiscal house uh, was right. Uh, Alberta simply could not carry on on that trajectory. Uh, that's for sure. Now, how it was done, I too have a problem with it. it. It was simplistic. It was just taking a knife and cutting out, you know, several percent from every ministry. Whereas some ministries could have stand even more and some shouldn't have been touched. Uh, and, and most of the ministries simply needed a rethink uh, of how, what is our goal? Why do we have this ministry in the first place? As, a, as I mentioned, you know, shifting from health to wellness, um, could we perhaps put in some preventative measures so that we don't have to spend on jails? Uh, maybe there is a way of preventing people from going to jails in the first place. You know, that kind of entire rethink of government and society, that never took place during Ralph Klein. It was, it was a, a very simplistic under Steve West approach of just bringing a, a knife and cutting things out. You know, Steve West was a veterinarian, uh, probably uh, uh, doing a lot of spading in his time. And he, that's what he did. He spaded the budget, you know, with a, with a scalpel and that's it. Now, Kenny is a different beast. Uh, Kenny um, not only is cutting uh, his percentages of dollars, but again, he is trying to affect the culture of the province. He, he is looking at long-term outcomes. Uh, his his uh, cuts are frankly much more crafty than than Klein's were. Klein's were simplistic. Uh, there was not much thought behind them. Uh, it was just achieving uh, a mathematical number. Uh, this guy is is much more crafty in his cuts, uh, and and what he's doing, as I said earlier, will be very difficult to reverse. No cuts are pleasant. I think Kenny's will have longer long-term uh, uh, effects. Well, and I think, I mean, at least the way I look at it, when when Ralph's cuts came, like the 93-ish era, like a few years later, oil and gas, well, gas especially just friggin' exploded. Like he got the boom that he needed for those austerity measures to pay off. But austerity has to have something like that happen in order for it to actually pay off. And now we're putting in all this austerity and I don't see at least personally another boom in our future, at least from fossil fuels. And uh, so we're just making cuts to things that are only going to create more need for social programming. Like we're just, perpetuating problems by making these cuts at this point. I agree. Um, there is, well, you know, there is a rethink. Uh, you know, I, I have nothing but respect for, for Kenny's uh, ability to craft policy to suit his end goals. Uh, you know, he, he, he is very crafty that way. Uh, so there is a lot of thought put into uh, some of the changes and, and, and the re-engineering of government that he's doing right now. But uh, cutting just for the sake of cutting to achieve certain budget targets, uh, no business would do that. So if you want to talk about let's run government like a business, no business would just say we're cutting 7% across everything. Uh, well, you don't, because you, if there are departments that actually do, uh, do R&D and generate new ideas and bring in new business, uh, you don't cut that. You maybe even put more money into that while you're cutting others. 
so this sort of cutting for the sake of cutting uh, to achieve uh, budgetary numbers is 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 silliness. Um, and yet, um, during my times in government, and particularly during NDP and these times in government as well, um, there isn't a this what I would call a rethink of government. You know. Uh, what role do we expect government to play in our society? And how do we achieve certain targets, uh, not only budgetary targets, but outcome targets uh, by delivering services differently, by reprioritizing services? Um, in absence of that, uh, you will never solve the problem of ever creeping budgets because there's a propensity to spend more when there is a boom, even though I agree with you, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel at this point in time. Uh, so, so we then end up throwing money. We end up throwing money before elections uh, to, to, to gain some votes, which, which again, we have to trim later. Uh, plus, there is just the, the natural uh, expansionism and growth of population and, and, uh, and inflation. Uh, the only way we will be able to bring our budget in line uh, and achieve not same but even better outcomes is if we start losing, uh, looking at some of the cost drivers. You know, why do we have such long lineups in emergencies? Does it have to be an eMERGE doctor doing things? Uh, is there a room for licensed practical nurses and, 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 uh, and, um, and other you know, healthcare providers? Is there a preventative measure? Uh, you know, how do we address uh, diabetes in this province and, and, and certain spreads of, of conditions that are really big drivers on the cost? Uh, you know, would perhaps uh, uh, covering uh, the cost of medication, even though it sounds expensive, would it actually save us money in, in the long run? Because now we have individuals who don't treat their diseases and they end up with much more severe cases in, in hospitals and our emergencies. Now, those are things we need to look at. If we were to early diagnose learning disabilities in children, uh, could we address those and could we bring them to graduation and, and could we increase their employment ability? You know, th those, are, those are big issues to tackle, but unless we start looking at it holistically and addressing, you know, I always say it's easier to put a fence on top of a mountain uh, to prevent people from falling than to call ambulances at the bottom all the time after they have fallen. So, you know, looking at government that way uh, would achieve those budgetary outcomes. The problem with being in government, though, is you, you want outcomes within four years for the next election. So there is that sort of short-term uh, mentality. But, you know, I have a lot of confidence in Albertans. So I think if we engaged in a conversation with Albertans saying, look, we may actually end up spending more in the next four years, but research shows that we will actually save in the long term. This is, this is the only way to save ourselves. Um, Albertans would be open to that kind of engaged dialogue on, on how to do business differently. You, you mentioned earlier that uh, government budget is like a household budget, but isn't there a fundamental difference there in that households aren't able to uh, you know, raise taxes? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is. Uh, no, I was arguing that that government isn't like, um, like running a business. Uh, but from a budget perspective, um, you know, there are some similarities. The, the, the difference, I guess the fundamental difference 
um, is this, that yes, governments are able to raise taxes, but then you can argue that you can always pick up an extra part-time job as well in a household, you know, however practical and impractical it, it may be. I think the similarity between government and household is that, that in, in a household budget, often we borrow money. You know, very few people have the kind of cash to buy a house for cash. Uh, nobody lives in a tent for 30 years, saves money, and then finally goes 30 years later, buys a house. Governments, there is smart. There are such things as smart borrowing. Um, governments can borrow money and invest now, and 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 make sense of it, especially if it if it saves you money in other realms of uh, uh, of of delivery. The, the the problem you have usually as a politician when you're communicating a multi-billion-dollar budgets uh, to the general public is you you try to draw analogies that people can relate to. You know, the irony is that, you know, you can have a $20,000 sell bill and everybody jumps on it, but you can actually blow $3 billion and, and, and people's heads don't wrap around it and, and, and they don't. So there's a propensity for, for politicians to use household budget. There are significant differences, but at the end, you know, in a province, in a country, at the end, you want to have a situation where you borrow for long-term projects, for infrastructure, for things like that, but your everyday operating budget should be close to balancing and over a longer period of time should balance because you just cannot be racking up more and more debt because government just doesn't print money. That, that, that debt is leveraged against some lending institution. And, and after a while, you start making payments on your debt. And those are dollars that you could have been using for delivering of services, right? So, um, so there is that analogy. At the end, you have to have a long-term fiscal plan and, and you have to live within your own means, whatever those means are. Now, if you're smart and you invest your money properly and the, you develop the right industries, your means can grow. But, but you have to be smart enough to do that. Often, as governments, we haven't. We, now, we just sort of milk that same cow over and over again. You and I talked about how there's, you know, I said, basically, my ideology is if you're alive, you should have the things that you need to be alive, the end, mm -hmm. and however we get there, right? And, and we're talking about living within our means. And, and Kenny really uses, he's hammering that phrase home lately. And uh, Travis Taves is hammering that phrase home lately. And what does it say, I guess, my opinion, like, what does it say about this system that we're even living in that if Alberta friggin' Canada can't afford to take care of its people, like if living within our means is decimating public health and public education and social programming, then what the, pardon my French, but what the fuck are we doing under this system that one of the richest jurisdictions in the world can't afford is has to argue about whether we can have enough nurses to take care of each other. Well, once one of the richest jurisdictions in the world, you know, we have to accept the fact that, uh, you know, we haven't been living off of taxation. We've been living predominantly off of one industry uh, and that industry is struggling for a number of reasons. And, 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 and there are reasons to believe that that industry will never recover to the point where it once was at its healthiest. Uh, so Alberta has some, some critical choices to make. Are we still going to continue betting on that one industry as, as Kenny tends to want to do? Or are we going to very aggressively uh, invest in, uh, 
start investing in, in other industries and developing other sources of revenue. Um, there doesn't seem to be a propensity to do that yet. We, we sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of a, almost like a drug addict. You say, you know, just give me one more hit, give me one more hit, and that's all I need. Then I'll go to rehab. And we all know that we don't. Uh, you know, once you get that hit, there was that bumper sticker. There was that bumper sticker, you know, if you give me one more boom and I won't piss it away this time. Well, we do because this, this plan, as I said earlier, is not sustainable. Uh, you cannot run a province on uh, on booms and busts just like you cannot run a household on casino win- winnings you know uh, um, this is not uh, this is not a good plan to the people that are my age and younger right and that are being sold this idea that we have to now like live within our means and our means happens to be in a bust period like this is what bugs me is that like an entire generation or generations of Albertans not only had the low taxation and the high services that the oil revenue paid for, but because mm-hmm. of that, they were at a place that's beyond anything we even understand. Like we're mm-hmm. paying like it, it, to be an adult in 2020 in your forties, like your money goes a lot less far than it did when my dad was 40, you know, sure, like, sure. and so I, I don't understand how it's fair to the people coming up to say, okay, sorry, not only did this generation piss away all the money that we could use to give you the things now, you have to pay that back by not having things for the next 30 years. And I don't see how that will actually a work, result in a prosperous society or B, how that's fair to the people that are being born today. Like my kid is in grade seven. Why, why do I have to tell him that there isn't enough money to give him a proper education? Because, oh, well, we, we fucked this up for so long and now we need to invest in tech and something else until we get the money back. Like I, yeah. I don't buy it. We're already well, running $25 billion deficits. Yeah. No, there's nothing, there's nothing fair about it. And, but this unfairness comes from, from this lack of uh, long-term planning and, you know, and, and see, that's my definition of conservatism. Um, as a conservative, I believe in long-term planning. So if I know I'm going to have five kids so many years apart after another, I want to make sure that my first kid and my last kid get the same opportunities. So I set up, savings account, educational savings account, and, and I set some money aside uh, so that even if I lose a job, I still will be pro- able to provide my subsequent children with the same, you know, basic uh, uh, services that my earlier ones got. We haven't done that. And, 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 and that's the difference, I think, in the definition of conservatism. And, and I believe that when things are good, you start investing in other businesses, you start investing in other industries so that when one dies, you know, I always used to say when I was in politics that the Stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stones. Bronze came along, you know, uh, and they were investing in bronze. So same with oil. Oil is not going to run out when when you hear, hear that slurping sound in the ground. Another energy source will come along and we should be investing in that already and, and maybe something even after that. You have to have a fiscally responsible plan in place for subsequent sources of revenue. Um, and, and it's the role of government and private sector industry and post-secondary institutions to continuously look for that next 
uh, source of revenue. But unfortunately, as I said earlier, there is, there is a lot of talk about it when things are tough. But the moment that gravy train arrives again, uh, we say, ah, forget it. Oil's back. We're good. Um, and, and now your generation is paying the price for that. There's just no doubt about it. You were, of course, part of several governments that rode this boom and bust cycle. Do you feel any responsibility for the situation we find ourselves in now? With Of course I do. Of, of course I do. My share of responsibility. Uh, and I can tell you, we, we had these discussions in caucus all the time, you know, on what should be done. But I can also tell you uh, that there was very little appetite for this in Alberta among Albertans. So, you know, I, I share an average responsibility that every Albertan should share, uh, probably with the added percentage of the fact that I was in government. Uh, but the fact is that um, during the 15 or so years that I was in government, uh, floating the idea uh, of what we're talking about right now would, would have been... Uh, would have been met with opposition. You know, that's how Wild Rose and all the other parties uh, came into power is, is because uh, they, they wouldn't have any of those conversations. Albertans weren't prepared for those, prepared for those conversations. And I don't believe Albertans still fully are, are prepared for those conversations. Uh, uh, you know, I, I still see Kenny flying high uh, on, on bashing the federal government and talking exclusively about investing in, in oil and gas and, and frankly, really nothing else. And I can tell you that if election was called today, Kenny would win again. So, so obviously there is um, Albertans, in a sense, like seeing what they're seeing. Uh, we spoke a few weeks ago uh, for a story I was doing for the uh, Jewish News here about uh, Father Ritzik in Poland, this virulently uh, homophobic, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic uh, priest um, mm -hmm. in the native uh, country um, who has been banned from visiting Alberta by the Archdiocese. But what I'm interested in is uh, you spoke a bit earlier about how you see what's happening here in Alberta with what's happening in your native Poland. I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that with sort of this rise of this far right uh, religious fundamentalist. Um, oh, sure. There definitely is a wave. And, and as you know, Harper actually is a chair of a body, international body, the international, what's it called? Uh, Democratic Union, I believe it's called. They just had a convention in, in Washington, D.C. of these ultra right wing uh, conservative parties. Um, this uh, this uh, is on a rise in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, we saw this wave also during Brexit. And what, what, what it really is, um, is um, an international movement of, of uh, far right-wing conservative parties. Um, Australia's conservative party is part of it. The Republican party is part of it. Um, Australia's that, conservative party being the liberal Democrats. That the, that's right, the, the irony of the names. Uh, so when you look up at their website, uh, Harper's organization's website, you, there's a number of these national and, and sub-national parties. Uh, they, they are definitely populist. Um, in in their approach to winning winning support, they they have often Christian uh, fundamental sort of evangelical um, sentiments attached to them. Some some officially, some some unofficially. Um, 
difficult to put them on a political spectrum uh, from a fiscal perspective. Some are actually socialist and, and some are extremely conservative. Um, but it's, but they, they share a few things in common. Number one, uh, they get into power by identifying uh, an enemy. Trump, for example, Mexicans uh, in the wall. Uh, in Poland, uh, now it's Jews and Germans and Ukrainians uh, and, and LGBTQ community. In Romania, it was the same thing. Uh, Brexit, it was actually the foreign workers uh, that, that were, uh, if not for them, we would be the richest country in the world. There's always this external enemy. Uh, there is always this, um, this sentiment of supremacy. We're better than the others. But, but if not for this group, uh, we would be much better off. Uh, there is a very... Uh, close similarity to the tactics that were being used by uh, by the NSDAP party in Germany uh, in early 30s, uh, 32, 33, uh, when when they were rising into power using that external enemy argument uh, and uh, and and how we are supreme and superior and how we deserve better than what we're getting, um, you know, making America great again. Uh, so there are very, very clear themes, you know, one, one when you start actually comparing, it's, it's, it's quite astonishing how same they are. And, and that is happening here in Alberta, unfortunately. Uh, when you're in it, it's sort of like boiling of a frog. You don't feel that the water is heating up. But when you actually step back and look at some of the tactics being used, um, you know, if only not for Ottawa, even though it makes no sense whatsoever, there's a whole bunch of fallacies, but if not, if not for Ottawa, we would be uh, uh, heaven on earth over here in this province. Just this damn Ottawa is screwing it up for us. When, when you know, those, we all know it's crazy. It just makes no sense. So that's the similarity. Father Ridzik uh, in, in Poland is a spiritual leader of this, of this craziness, uh, a xenophobe, uh, you know, hate speech would be an understatement in many cases. And he drives that train over there. And we have our own drivers here. Uh, maybe not as overt. We are a little bit more gentle uh, over here, but but frankly, the similarities are there. I imagine that there are a lot of uh, for, uh, progressive conservatives from the of, of past in Alberta that feel a lot like you do. And I guess I just want to ask, like, there's some of those that might reluctantly vote for Kenny because he's still got the word in his name, and 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 you held your nose and sort of voted for the NDP. You're kind of a man without a, a political home. What do you say to these other folks in Alberta that must feel a lot like you do, that they don't know which way to turn because the NDP turns them off and Kenny is Kenny. Well, the message is to Rachel Notley. If she wants to attract some of uh, individuals like myself and many, many, many others, uh, she has to make some changes within her own NDP party. Um, uh, perhaps even look at rebranding and disaffiliating herself with federal NDP. And I think there is a potential of, of getting enough critical mass to win the next election. Uh, but that's, you know, maybe next time we hook up, we can have a conversation about, about that. But in the meantime, this group is home, uh, homeless and, and, and maybe they will end up voting NDP this time because now they actually see what Kenny is all about. Um, you know, people were sort of hoping that he would be different. But, but I know many people who voted for Kenny are now uh, quite disappointed. So we'll see where it goes. But I, I think now the ball is in, in Rachel Notley's court and, and she has to make some wise political decisions. Thank you so much for that. Now, I, now 
Will you come back and do the show again sometime? Because of course, we just we had our longest episode ever with you, and I still have about twenty things I want to ask you. So and you we're going to talk about my cell bill. So let's come back. No, no, no. Bill. See, we actually <laughs> made a pact that other than to make a quick joke at the beginning, there we weren't going to bring that up. I don't give a shit. That's about a good story. Stress, it's a good story. But so we, we will. Ha- we will. Fair I enough. also want the story of how you were called an asshole, Perfect. and we got so much to talk about. So we're going to bring you back. But let's I, I know you got to run. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Honestly, we really appreciate it. I like I ha- I have the utmost respect for you, and uh, like I I love being able to chat with somebody that we don't always agree, but we we can we can be respectful, and we we at least know we both of us are coming from the same place. Like we love this province, we love about. the people here, and so thank you again. Just thank appreciate you. you coming on. I greatly appreciate your uh, candor. And even though I, you know, don't agree with you on some like fundamental, uh, I think, uh, philosophical issues, I sure. uh, appreciate how um, you think about uh, these policy issues in a very, uh, you know, intellectual way. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day, guys. Thanks, Thomas. Take care, Pleasure. buddy. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Take care. Okay, so that's the time in our show, you guys. Where uh, we're gonna get out of here. Um, I don't know how long was that, Mo. That's pretty long. We might end up. It was releasing. almost two hours. We're probably gonna release this in two parts, I think, just to give yeah, you guys definitely a little break. A so at this point, you're already listening to the second part, right? So, um, but uh, we'll throw maybe this part at the be at the end of each episode. Anyways, this is the time in our episode in our show where we like to thank our patrons who go above and beyond. Um, so we just like want to say, uh, Chris Sterwell, Big Red Machine, Dave Von Miller. Really appreciate what you guys do for us. The support goes a long way. To our other patrons, thank you so much. Uh, to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. Smash five-star reviews. Subscribe. Tell your friends if you can. And uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to this uh, candid chat with Thomas. Um, and we hope to have him back again so we can get even more in-depth. What did you think of that one, Jeremy? I thought it was great. I... Uh... Yeah, I mean, what my parting words to Thomas are, uh, what I think it was a definitely a very enlightening chat. And I like when we get people on uh, that we don't agree with. Totally. Um, to sort of flesh out our disagreements. And um, also, you know, I mean, he, he was in government for a long time, so he's got a lot of he was the number two. He was fucked on. And I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's great that he spoke about some regrets he had uh, quite openly and uh, how he acknowledges that in some ways he helped pave the way for. Well, I, I, and, I think it's important that other people acknowledge some of the things that he did say as being accurate as well, that when you're in government, it's hard to just do like he, he was pretty obviously didn't agree with absolutely everything that happened when he was with the PCs, but uh, that's part of governing is sometimes it's not um, exactly how you want. So uh, like, you know, I I agree. I don't agree with him on some of his fundamental uh, policy or like, you know, ideas but at the same time i have nothing but respect for the man i I enjoy chatting with him and i like uh i invite other conservatives or progressive conservatives or even alt-right conservatives to come on this show and chat with us it's a friendly place and uh we really appreciate uh mr lukasik being on
Drew Barton's come on the pod. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least Derek Fildebrandt, right? Anyway. Fildebrandt would do it. He hates me. Well, he doesn't even know who I am, but he blocked me a while ago. He follows me. So. Ah, well, you get him on yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's get out of here. Thanks, you guys. Uh, appreciate it. I have no idea what the date is now because this is two weeks from now. But uh, peace. Bye.